host, welcome to this week's episode of Hollow Weekly. Nick and George here with, what time is it? So it is the earliest we have ever recorded a podcast in hundreds of episodes, but we're recording it about something called Midnight Mass. So, it's so we're, we're a couple hours off. <laughs> We're, we're, we're a couple hours. I mean, off. we're closer to midnight than we're than we're closer to midnight the other way. Yeah, we <laughs> backwards. Midnight just happened. <laughs> like, midnight just happened, man. But we're here to bring it. This is I, I really want to sell this show because everyone should give it a chance. This is an amazing uh, piece of work, dude. I feel like, um, Mike Flanagan. Every I, I don't know if it's every other year because I was looking at like when Hill House came out. I was looking at when Bly Manor came out and you know, this just, just came out like, like last week or something like that. Like a couple week and some couple, some change. And I feel like whenever mm-hmm. Mike Flanagan releases a new, uh, series to me, like that's the start of October. Like, <laughs> like, like I feel yeah, like he's become our, he's, he's become our Bravo's scariest moment. Somehow. Yeah. He like, he like, he like rings in like Halloween season for us now. Like, <laughs> it's crazy like it was the same with hill house like because i don't remember like I, I felt like they came out like right before october or like in that same time frame mm-hmm. but like they were always there in the month of october to like really set the tone for uh, right and now season. we just know in advance we now we know in advance what halloween 2022 looks like it's gonna be mike flanning and follow the house of Usher dude how I'm, cool is that so dude excited. like <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited you know, there's a there's a, a great horror author. Um, he didn't get quite the the renown that um, probably definitely not King or Clive Barker, but I, I'm not even sure he hit the Peter Straub level at his height. But he he probably deserved to. His name is Robert R. McCannon, and he McCammon, and he wrote um, Swan Song, uh, which is a great horror novel. But he wrote a book called Usher's Passing. It was the first book is I I read. And it was a take on the fall of the House of Usher. And after I was done reading, I'm like, "Why aren't more people doing this material? This is so amazing." So I'm not, and then uh, and now Mike Flanagan's hit it. I'm not 100 percent familiar on Fall of the House of Usher. I know that was a it was a, they, a Vincent Price movie back in the day. Is that right? It was an older movie, or yeah, I mean the, the it was part of the the Corman cycle. They they always did. You know, they were doing all the Poe things, so that was part of it. There's there's been a lot of adaptations of it. Poe was, you know, uh, kind of literary. Uh, he was very literary back then. So you could respectable, like, people like Bev Keen in in uh, Midnight Mass would have would have taught Poe in school, right? So um, he had a, <laughs> She would have been like Edgar Allan Poe, that heretic. <laughs> <laughs> but he had a weird respectability, which is ironic considering he was the least respectable major American author ever. But um, he... Yeah, I mean, the, it's it's really just a Hill House vibe, right? Usher is is physically connected. The house is physically connected to the family. It's sort of like a portrait of Dorian Gray situation. The family's fortunes are in decline. The house is in decline. You know, when when someone gets a headache, a door splits in half, right? It's a crazy cool. It's just perfect. It's perfect for him. It's oh, gonna that's, be great. I'm I'm so excited. Okay, so midnight midnight mass. Mm-hmm. I think he wrote this. Like this is like an original thing from him, right? Like this is yeah. This this I got a lot of my information about this from your fiance. So like I know the, the idea here, right? Good. 
yeah, like we en- we ended it, and then like she like I really like this is my favorite out of the three series he's done, but like she really loved mm-hmm. it, and like after we finished it that night, like because it's so existential, like she was like I need answers, and so she was like reading interviews with Mike Flanagan <laughs> like for the rest of the night, and I was trying to sleep, but I was here. Did you know that like he's got like three kids, and he was writing this for ten years, and he had to rewrite the conversations, and a lot of the dialogue is him having conversations with himself throughout the <laughs> through throughout the years, and I was like, one that makes the show way more awesome. <laughs> Two, can we talk yeah. about this in the morning? <laughs> right. <laughs> right, and now here you are talking about it in the morning. In the morning, yeah, the, the, exactly. um, the, Way too early. The the ironic thing though is, um, it does seem to be his passion project. He, project. He said it's the best thing he's done up to this point. And and let's not forget. I mean, he's done, you know, a lot of the major horror movies of the last few years. Where you know, as well, he's really well known for Gerald's Game. He did Doctor Sleep, right? So, uh, and, and a lot of other stuff. So he, at Oculus, which I happen to have loved, and he, uh, it's, it's weird because if he thinks this is the best thing he's done, but it seems like he's been working on it over like a 20 year span. And, mm-hmm. and that means a lot has changed from how he originally conceived it. A lot has been shuffled or added in. And you can tell it's almost like, it's almost like archaeology, right? There, there, there will be lines of dialogue in there that sound like written by someone who's a lot more optimistic or pessimistic than they might be now, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So it's interesting that, that he grew throughout the whole project, which is really cool. Yeah. And no. you fell in love with it first. I, 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 I actually, it's weird. I, I have it ranked just like you. I like this the best. I like my minor, minor second best. I like Hill House. The least of the three, even though I love, basically love all of them. Yeah, I do consider Hill House probably the scariest, just in terms of traditional horror scares of the three. Um, but Bly Manor, which I really liked, um, had a wearying effect somehow. The idea of even rewatching it um, felt heavy, and mm-hmm. it made me a little less excited somehow. Even though it was better, right? And, and how unfair to artists. Like he does Hill House, then he does Bly Manor, which I liked more, and then he drops a third one, and I'm like, nah, I'm going to penalize you for doing better and not get that excited <laughs> about your, your, new, your new project, because Bly Manor felt really heavy. It felt like reading a Russian novel somehow at times, right? So uh, even though it's amazing. So I, I knew I was going to watch Midnight Mass. I knew the odds were, were huge that I was going to love it, but for some reason, I just didn't rush into it like... You guys did, and you and Alex watched we, it right away, and I kept getting we actually updates didn't. from you of how great it was. We actually, oh, you didn't? No, so we actually watched the trailer. So, like, I, we knew we were going to watch it, or I, at least I knew I, knew I was going to watch it. And we mm-hmm. watched a little bit of the trailer, and I, I think Alex just wasn't in the mood to get into, like, a series like that because we had just finished, like, a couple thing like, series, like, back-to-back pretty much, and... You know, for the horror community, uh, they'll think this is really scary. But one of the series we watched was Gossip Girl, and <laughs> I fucking love that show, dude. Yeah, that show is great. That show is... <laughs> don't Everyone's even frightened. don't don't get me into the drama between B and S, okay? Um, <laughs> but I kept I kept you looking don't know at what that means. But... <laughs> exactly, be afraid. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> but. Um, I kept looking at the But room. you didn't you were you were thinking maybe not pick up a big show right away. Well so I, when did you watch? Like how so, did you jump into so it? So I think I think um 
R.C. Martin in the Hollow Weekly group was posting about it, and mm. I saw I, I saw some discourse in the Hollow Weekly group, which if you're listening to this, join it, um, about some people. It was a typical horror discussion of, oh, it's not that scary, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, well, what are like the critics saying? And it was like 92%. And I was like, okay, well, I think I think we should probably... <laughs> They should probably check it out because it's pretty unanimous. Really good, it's yeah. Pretty unanimous. This is a great goddamn show. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, so then we fight. We fired it. Up, fired it up, and um, I, I think I, I connected with it pretty quick. Like I immediately loved that opening with uh, the the girl who ended up being the ghost for um, our our quote main guy <laughs> with the with the glass in her face right and then, right, and then yeah. I, oh that 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 opening the very first shot of the fish on his car and how the police lights were lighting it up and all you were seeing was that christian fish outline and it was the most beautiful like christmas ornament looking and then it pulls back and you realize the scene you're looking at and it's horrible it's so horrible it was so pretty and then it got so horrible. And then as it cuts out, it flashes over to the girl laying there. And it got so pretty again. Right? She was like part stained. She was like part stained glass. It was incredible. Yeah. I So I first, and when I saw that, I was like, okay, this is going to be great. And then when I noticed, or when I when they introduced, uh, was it Crocker? The Crockpot? The Island? The Crockpot. Yep. Crock as, as, yep. Soon, as soon as I, I saw that, like this whole like series was pretty much going to take place on a small island. Like I'm a sucker for small settings. So I was like, Oh, this is going to be yeah, like the fog. It was like the fog. You, you were, you all of a sudden you had that feeling you were, it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, no. So I, I, I knew right away that like I was, I was really going to, uh, really going to dig this. And so it didn't take Alex and you long to, uh, no, but, to and, get into it. And the other thing was, is weren't we, was, was it you and I, I don't know if we did this on an episode or if it was Alex and I, but we were talking about like what genuinely scares us. And the one thing that I said that I thought was like really freaky that not a lot of horror movies did was like eyes glowing. And like the, like the first episode is just a thousand eyes glowing. So I was like, Oh, they're doing it. <laughs> and it's, and it's, yeah, and it's the, everything the, I wanted. The, the, the cats, the first, the cats. And then when the kids are, you know, getting high and, uh, what telling, you know, urban legend stories about harpoon Harry or whatever. And then it flashes over and you get your first glimpse of the, you know, there's good, by the way, there's spoilers galore in this episode. So just, just strap in. We highly recommend that you watch it without spoilers. So walk well, away and come back to this watch, <laughs> watch it, take a week off because this is a very existential <laughs> series. Like it is hardcore. It is. Right? It's, it's but when and then you see the first of the dark angel and the eyes and the and the the whatever they did musically with with that first reveal is just oh, chef's kiss. It was so good. No, it was it was great. When it um, okay, so I, I, well, I got good news for you though because you you ready for this? I've already rewatched um, half of it. Not only did I lap you, I, like <laughs> I started after you, but now I've watched the whole series. But I rewatched the first two episodes again and I did it on purpose because I knew we were recording this episode and I had a hunch and my hunch is is so right. Oh, right? lay so, it on me. I, there, it, so there's things I want, there's something I want to say about this just out of the gate, first of all, right? I am disinclined as a person to enjoy what I think of as like college dorm philosophizing, right? Mm -hmm. So 
you know, can God make rocks that people can't lift or like whatever, all that stuff where people sit around and do whatever. Anne Rice had that disease when she was writing her, her existential vampire interview with the vampire, you know, cycle, whatever. But, um, so I really thought I might be in trouble with this series because there is a lot of that. And I see a lot of complaining online that it's a little slow or very monologue heavy or very talky, et cetera, et cetera. And honestly, not only, not, not only all of that is true, <laughs> weirdly, mm-hmm. but the thing is, I, I think Midnight Mass might be helping me as someone who appreciates and loves horror to realize that there might be different ways to grade things than Rotten Tomatoes score or whether there's good or bad things in them, right? I started to realize when I was watching this that even if it isn't perfect, even if it has a couple of flaws, even if it is a little like baggy in terms of, of uh, you know, it's filled with speech speechifying, um, there are things in this show that are 10 times better than you, you will find them anywhere else in horror right now maybe even in, in basically darker mainstream entertainment right now. And that in and is of itself kind of makes it more than worth it, right? Because first of all, Hamish Linklater, the, 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 the actor who plays the priest, gives like a performance for the ages, mm-hmm. along with um, the, uh, Bev, along with Bev Keen, both of them. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sell the other actors short, but those two alone... <laughs> do something in this show that is so much better than you're going to get elsewhere that even if it falls down. So think about it like this. If, if it was like traditional letter grades, right? If you could, if, if you're scoring on like, whether it's a B here or a C plus here or whatever, the thing is you have to go up off the letter chart you have to go 10 letters above a wherever that would be you'd have to make up a letter <laughs> ten, 10 spots higher than a for a couple of things that are going on there and you just aren't it's like it, it's like in you know final destination when the guy swings the hammer to win the prize and knocks the bell off the top of the thing <laughs> because he's so strong right like the, there's no bell left on this so even if mike flanagan steps up you know in episode three and goes to swing the hammer and the thing only the little iron thing only goes halfway up the 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 runner or whatever there's no bell there anymore cuz he blew the fucker off right <laughs> with other with other things he did in this show and that's really where what's going to make it special is right but the reason i'm saying all this is because i had a hunch that if you care about the show and if you care about the characters in the show and if you buy into the setting, which I think is the first time since Twin Peaks, that I can turn to people who never experienced Twin Peaks and say that excitement you're feeling about Midnight Mass, that's how I felt about watching the original Twin Peaks, right? Mm-hmm. What you're feeling right now when the camera's panning along Crockett Island and Riley's chasing the angel across the beach in a lightning storm and you're just hanging out with the characters walking up and down the roads and you're into, you know, what, what's happening on the Island. And that's a twin peaks vibe. That's an OG (laughs) twin peaks vibe. Right. So, but the thing that is amazing to me is what happens on a rewatch. Dude, I I was like, I'm going to just take very small notes 
and rewatch a couple episodes uh, so that I can prepare for us recording this podcast. I have like 30 notes from the first 20 minutes of episode one. No way. Uh, from, from the rewatch. And I'm not going to go through them all. I'm just saying there was, once you realize what happens in this show and you go back and rewatch it. Here, I'll give you a couple examples. Lay it on me. So, so now that you know what's happening in the show, right? There's this moment when the, 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 first of all, the fact that a show where we're going to spend the entire time on Crockett Island. The entire time, right? But the show starts on a shot of the most gorgeous Blade Runner-esque picture of a big modern city. Because the car is framed in the background with like the perfect desktop background of a gorgeous modern city. It actually reminded me of the opening of Candyman. But we're never going to see anything that doesn't look like fucking island again. Right. As soon as we, as soon as Riley gets to the island, we're just in Crockett Island for the whole rest of the show, basically. Right. So the fact that it starts with a visual that is totally unrepresentative of what the show is going to be, and the fact that everyone you meet in the show is basically unrepresentative of who they really are, <laughs> the show is mirror is mirroring what the characters are doing. Right. So just just from the fact alone that it's set up that way and then all of the double meanings that you start to see in what the characters are saying to each other when when um when monsignor pruitt well sorry when father paul hill (laughs) arrives in the crockpot right the first um kind of like ships in dracula so the first thing i think of is that ship in the storm that always brings dracula from transylvania to london Right, mm-hmm. it's in every Dracula rendition. It's the big ship where the guy ties himself to the steering wheel, and everyone gets eaten, and there's just bodies, and the ship just floats up to the London dock like a ghost ship, and unleashes Dracula like the plague on on London. Right, so there's this trope in vampire, you know, lore about vampires can't cross water theoretically, so. Yeah, they if they're on the ship and they're in their boxes of dirt and the ghost plague ship always shows up, right? So then we immediately cut to in this because Flanagan is a genius this way. We immediately cut to a ship, and the ship is the ferry, and the ferry is bringing the bad thing, but the bad thing is Riley Flynn. Right. The island, the worst thing that that island thinks that the worst thing that's going to land on this island is this murderer, Riley Flynn, this bad reputation guy who and up to now, all they had was Joe Collie, who had shot someone and paralyzed or partially paralyzed them, but not hadn't even killed them. Mm -hmm. Right. So the worst villain on the island was Joe. And now Joe's being replaced by the baddest villain of all. The murderer from the big city, Riley Flynn. So we cut to this ship and it's just like smoothly sailing, heading towards the island. You got these shots of Riley on it. And so it's the vampire like villain approaches trope, but it's a complete fake out. It's a complete re-engineering of that trope. And then the vampire just sneaks in, <laughs> right? <laughs> like he's on the same ship, but he's just minding those business, dragging his own kind of crate, you know, like whatever. Paul Hill kind of sneaks in with no fanfare. Bev shows up at the docks and she's like, where's Monsignor Pruitt? And Sturge is like, I don't know. And she's like, 
it's kind of hard to miss. <laughs> so, the, so it's the total vampire, the Demeter ship, Dracula trope. Right. But re-engineered so subtly and coolly that it's like, fre- it's a fresh take on it. But but also a commentary on how it would be in modern times. It wouldn't be the big romantic storm. It'd be a perfect day, you know, clear skies, and then just the ferry rolls in. The next thing you're all your whole island screwed. <laughs> right? <laughs> but not for the reason you think it is. So it, just from that alone, I find it amazing that that he was able to rework a lot of the religious elements that have to do with vampirism, a lot of the way the you know, vampire tropes work into this new structure that he was building. It's that just phenomenal. But the, 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 the special thing here is Midnight Mass isn't just the best horror show that I've seen in quite a while. It's a horror show that is gonna, I knew was going to give me two pleasures. The first pleasure was the first watch, and the second pleasure was the second watch, knowing the whole story and catching all of the cool things that were happening. And there are so many cool double meaning things that happen after once you know what's going on, right? When 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 the father you know gets up there and he's giving his very first sermon to the people, and he's 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 telling them, you know, it's it's uh he's like he literally says the very first episode, the very first time he speaks to the church when he walks in and they're expecting Pruitt and they get Hill, and he goes, so where is all this headed? It's headed for Easter. It's headed for rebirth. It's headed for immortality. And like, we watched that. I watched that on the first pass as a viewer and thought zero things about it, except for he's a good preacher, <laughs> right? He straight but just laying it turns down the out he was, he was straight out laying down. He was doing the James Bond villain, I'm going to tell you everything is going to happen to you, but he's not doing it in the third act after he catches James Bond. He's doing it immediately. You know what's crazy right? about that? You just don't know it. What's that? Is so comparing this, this is a weird comparison, but comparing this to the Mini Saints in Newark, and it, where because that was the one thing that I, I kept thinking about after we, uh, you were telling me like in the Sopranos, uh, when people say they're going to do something, it's the thing they should be doing, but then they do the opposite. But in Midnight Mass, they yeah. say the thing, but instead of flipping it, they're like they actually lean into what they say. <laughs> so it's like it's like flip. So- Totally, and, and honestly, not to get too deep about it, but the 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 I I think I told you before my absolute favorite thing I've ever read anyone say about Shakespeare was that his characters were the first characters in literature to become free artists of themselves. So what what the what the writers I think it was Nietzsche what they said was they listen to themselves talk and they change based on what they hear themselves say, mm-hmm. right. So Hamlet in Act 5 is different than Hamlet in Act 1, but it's because he's been listening to his own speeches. So these characters are are setting out out loud what they're going to do. And then the the characters, the really the ones we care about, the ones we really follow, the ones like the the ones like Riley and and um uh I forget her name right now, but it'll come to me. The Kate Segal, the the my friend. Oh, uh, Aaron. Her character Aaron, Aaron Green, right? So the, the, they're and she, I mean, that performance is phenomenal. And she's one of the, she's probably the best of all the characters in the entire show at changing based upon what she's been thinking all along, right? She says a thing, you know, later in the show near the end where 
uh, Riley takes her out on a boat. She's in a very isolated situation. Oh, that, this, that, that, this is my favorite goes, part of the whole. That's my favorite part of the whole series. The thirty days of night part, yeah. The thirty days of night part is pretty amazing. But she takes he he takes her out of the boat and she goes, "Are you? Did you take me here to scare me?" She, and she basically says, "I'm paraphrasing because it won't work because I've decided I don't let people do that to me anymore." Right? Think of the power of of you know, especially in a horror context, right? Of being the kind. It would be like Jason coming up on you in the woods unexpected and you turn around and being like, no, I don't allow you to do this. <laughs> just, right. It's like a super, it's like a superpower almost. <laughs> right. And she, and he might kill her there. She might run into bad, you know, uh, outcomes there or whatever, but she's not going to allow herself to be scared. Right. And that is something that has happened over time as she's kind of processed what's going on on the Island, what's been going on in her life, what's going on, inside her emotionally, but she's articulating it all in a really cool way as it goes. So we see how she's getting where she's getting, right? And I think that's one of the things I appreciate appreciate about the show the most is just like it, almost to a painful, boring level, we, we never are in a mystery of where how characters get to where they get to because we always see it on the island. They're fucking walking from point A to point B mm-hmm. and then back from B to A and then on a boat from here to here and then over here to over here. We know how they're going, but I don't think it's an accident that visually we're always following the characters going from point A to point B because they're also emotionally always going from point A to point B, right? So... Um, did you find it scary? Uh, and what's the, what's your scarometer on this show? Ooh, that's a good question. I would probably say so. If I if I had to put Hill House, if I if I had to, to compare it, just to, I would say I'd probably put Hill House around like a probably seven or eight. Like especially like the basement scenes was really scary. This uh, this one Midnight Mass, I think I'd probably put that at like a like a six, like it wasn't really scary, but like there were some really unsettling things in there that it sort of had the um, personal shopper effect where, you know, when you watch it, it's yeah. not very scary, but then, you know, you get ready to go to bed and you turn on all the lights and like, you're like, what if something like grazed my back or something like that? Like, what if something's like, you know, in the other room? <laughs> because when we finished it, I was turning out all the lights and I just like, you know, because it's very existential at the end. Like, you're, you know, you know, I think everyone who finishes Midnight Mass kind of sits there for a few minutes and like quietly and they're just like <laughs> trying to process it. Uh, so after we did that, I was yeah. like getting ready to go to bed. And like, I just felt like, like I did with, with personal shower. I just felt completely unnerved for some reason. And I, I don't know why, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, like a hereditary, but it was like, it was like a six, but like a good six, if that makes sense. It does. That's the thing is I felt like in traditional horror scarometer terms, it's almost a five. There yeah. are some effective moments. There's there's some really quick lunges from the main vampire that are really effectively done. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminded me of the only, and I stress only good thing in Dracula Untold, which is Charles Dance playing the ancient vampire, right? That's a pretty cool thing to to pull off and and they do that in this show as well so there's some of that but it's it's the scarometer is a five the um uh the unsettle uh, unsettle you and make you feel like 
life is a lot more corrupt and dark than you expected. It's like a 15. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the, that's the problem is that's where it hits. It hits kind of in a different place. It's most of the, mo and weirdly, the, the most devastating moments are almost never paranormal, right? Or even if there's something paranormal happening, like in the, in, the, in the Easter vigil, really the worst things that are happening in the church until, the, the, until from dusk till dawn breaks out is they're, they're not the supernatural parts. It's how, how the, the people in the pews cannot update themselves fast enough on the changing situation to save themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's a terrible feeling. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's like the, it's like the, this, that movie where they're sitting watching the avalanche come down the hill and the guys with his family and he's like, no, it's fine. He's like, this happens all the time here. And they're like, it's getting awfully close. No, it's fine. And then all of a sudden the apple boulders are landing next to their like breakfast table, <laughs> <laughs> boulders of boulders of ice. And the family's like, it's not fine, <laughs> right? Like, they, they didn't update themselves fast enough to the oncoming danger. And you keep wanting to yell at them, you know, like, get out, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. But you, you can't save them. They can't save themselves. It's that kind of, you know, thing. One, one, but the devastating moments in this show are really quiet. There's a, there's a moment I caught on the rewatch early on when, um, when Riley gets out of jail and he's coming back home on the ferry a la Nosferatu, and um, as he's, his, his mom calls him, and she's talking really, like, basically loud, like, I love you, honey, did they give you all your things back, do you know what time to, we're going to pick you up, you know, just mundane, you know, conversation, and she's talking at kind of the level I'm talking now, right, mm -hmm. and then when she, and then what I didn't notice on the first watch, and it really broke my heart when I, when, when I realized what was happening, She's talking really loud. Her other son, who's younger than Riley, is in the kitchen. Her husband is about to leave the kitchen. And she's like, blah, 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 blah. And then she goes, okay, well, I'll see you soon. I love you. I love you. And then she drops her voice. Like she's embarrassed to tell her own son that she loves him because mm -hmm. of the bad thing he did. <clears throat> right? Like the fact that she feels like it's not safe in her own home to express love to her son who is now a murderer is so sad. Yeah, well that's what made <laughs> right? that's what made and it, this show has those moments. Go. Well, that's what made the um the part when Riley uh eventually becomes a vampire soup and <laughs> he doesn't show up for work on his father's dock and he it's the it's the first time like you start to see the dad like it shows some love for his son, but it's like it's it's very very gradual. Um, and then that moment when he doesn't show up and like, he like slaps the crate full of <laughs> crab at his son. <laughs> um, I and, burst out laughing when he did that, by the way. Yeah. Cause the, the, the crab's like, Whoa. I hated his character. I, I hated his character, man. I absolutely hated his character. There did you hate him so towards, did you hate him towards, towards the end when he, when he started to show the fact him, that dude, I hated him all the way. I hated him all the way through. I have no forgiveness in my heart for him. I'm no, sorry. No way. That guy is Ter that dude is terrible. He is a, he's either, he's either a miss on the writing, or I'm just not disposed to catch whatever's supposed to be going on with that character because he, he was nothing but bad to me. A matter of fact, him and his mom were were like, to, they were a huge part of the problem of what was going on on the island in general. 
Right? Uh, like they were uh, in complete denial when Aaron shows up to after <clears throat> after Riley thirty days and nights himself. Um, that when when he when Aaron shows up and says, you know, Riley's dead, and he wanted me to come save his family if I could, and she goes, "You're not funny." Why would you say that? You're not funny. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of true and sort of accurate as a response, right? It's sort of like heartbreaking or whatever. But if you're only going to show me a character... So basically, here's... Here, I'll, I'll, I'll map out Riley as, as I see it. I'll map out Riley's parents' character arc for you. Um, in delusion, in delusion, not really supportive, in delusion. Um, figured out everything that happened, sing a song, die. <laughs> right? that's, that's their character. That's their, that's their character arc to me, right? It's like 98% in delusion, have a realization of what's happening, sing a choral song with everybody else, and then immolate, right? That's, that's, their, that's their character arc. So I, I'm not impressed with their... <laughs> the, I, the mom I had a lot more sympathy for than the dad. The dad might be my least favorite character on the entire damn show. Oh, no, you're... No way. Even at the end, when he embraced his wife, like, there's Even no... The there's no Who cares? way. Who cares? There are seven episodes, man. No, man. There's seven episodes. I'll, he did one thing. He embraced his own wife. Like, what kind of idiot wouldn't think to do that at the end? Un unreal. I, I just it his character was trash. I liked me, I I liked him, man, because that's the thing I like about the Mike Flanagan stuff, and I think that's why I really liked. Because um, I know a lot of people like Blind Manor over Hill House. Um, I think I think I have Hill House ranked second. In my opinion, because I there's something that Mike Flanagan does about like family, and the com and how complicated families are, and I think that's why I liked Midnight Mass because there's it's so hard to like show the complication unless you do like some really boring melodrama, you know, <laughs> like some you know totally. the families. Um, I don't know. I just I, I just I just think there's a complication there that is super hard to pull off and also super hard to make easy for an audience and i think he i think he did it really mm -hmm. well with the dad's understanding and coming around because i don't know it's kind of hard to you know if your son murdered someone <laughs> to, 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 to swing back around it's kind of difficult you know um i didn't I actually I, sure i mean i'm i'm with you but I, I i agree with everything you just said i just translate it to the whole island i think the whole island is a family and i mm. think the community is is really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the community functionings because, to be honest, the inner family dynamics, like the dynamics between the sheriff and his son Ali, the dynamics between, um, you know, Aaron and her, your tragic kind of you know parental past and all that. Those are exactly what you're saying. Those are the melodrama, right? Those are the things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't that you could just take them out of this story and drop them into uh, uh, the notebook. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's sort of the same kind of plot. Right. So it's not, that's the thing is I, I feel like those are kind of the basic building blocks and they're good and they got to be there. And they, you know, I, to, to be honest with you, I'm not complaining. I, I wanted his characters. I wanted Riley's dad to be trash because you know, it, there's a there's a laziness to the writing of redeeming everybody, right? Or giving everyone insights or making everyone, you know, it's one of the things where it, it's something that Stephen King does from time to time, where there's a character 
who just is has no background or ability or you know capacity or or anything for understanding anything in a complicated way and then all of a sudden they're speaking in like incredibly elaborate literary metaphors about you know what happened to them as they're dying or whatever you're like wait where did this come from you know riley's dad was was obtuse the whole time he was obtuse till the end and then he kind of figured it out real quick with with you know the end approaching and then um sang <laughs> i mean whatever like who couldn't do that like who what uh, what human being could you not plug into that role and pull that off right like basically here if if you go if you go to if you go to someone and you're like you know what i i want to use non-actors in this in this show right so what I want you to do is I want you to find someone in life who's just wrong all the time and never, you know, really doesn't get anything right. And then um, they figure it all out at the end, right? So, so what you got to do is find someone who's just basically wrong all the time and once in a while get something right. Well, I mean, that's everybody. That's not everyone. <laughs> that's not, that's not everyone. If so, Donald Rumsfeld started singing, I'd be like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's true. But here, there, there's... I want to talk about something. I want to ask you something and see if I, I'm crazy about this or not. But there is something about the cadence in which um, the the priest and Bev talk that I could listen to for hours. I want an audio book narrated by Father Hill or Monsignor Pruitt and... A, a book narrated by Beverly. I love the way Bev talks. I love the way she emphasizes certain words and doesn't emphasize certain words. And there's like these sinister pauses and then she punches the wrong things. It's like, it's like that old joke. She puts the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable all the time. Mm -hmm. and, but she's punching these weird words because she has this weird internal agenda. <laughs> well, Right? So she doesn't she doesn't talk right. But for some reason, it's sort of soothing. I don't know why. But when 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 she invites, when she brings, after the first murder and they're trying to cover it up, and she brings the two kind of like sub-apostles, the two lackeys in, Sturge and whoever, I can't remember who she mm -hmm. first enlists into, you know, into God's army, but the, they're standing there, they're looking at this massacre scene, right? And they're like horrified. They're like, they're like we can't, she's like, drag it out of here. Take it, wrap it up in a carpet and get it out of here. And they're like, it? They're like, that's Joe Colley. That's, he's one of us. He's our friend. That's an Islander. Like, they're horrified that she's talking to him. And she's like, do not cherry pick the gifts of God. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's like this ebb and flow of crazy in her voice where, where she's just like going up and down on every other word. And it's, it's, it's so good. And then, the, the sermons that friggin' Father Paul gives, there should be like a book, you know how there's like a, a Meditations of Marcus Aurelius book, you know, whatever, like the, <laughs> the best sayings of, of uh, like there's a book, the, the sayings of Genghis Khan or whatever. There should be like the sermons of Monsignor Pruitt book <laughs> because his sermons are great. He's had quite a, quite a bit of time <laughs> like, to work on them. He's been around right, for I, <laughs> He's been around for a while. And the cadence... The cadence in which he talks, and you know, I know we could find a million plot holes in this show, but and I, I was able to ignore most of them because I didn't really feel like they were pertaining to kind of what the show was really good at. But 
one thing that kept bothering me was that f f that Monsignor Pruitt had such a distinctive way of talking. It almost was that like sure they weren't going to recognize. No, but, like whenever he talked, it was almost like he wasn't sure what he was going to say, but like it was totally like a farce. Like he absolutely knew. <laughs> like there was like a shakiness in his voice. Totally. And that's the thing is there, there was this there was this uh, a thing that he was doing where he 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 was it was it was the sound of someone who had put a lot of thought into something, but was incapable of communicating it without thinking about it while they were also saying it. Yeah. It was the voice of an obs of an obsessive. It's an obsessive person, right? And it's also a person, and I think this is one of the greatest grace notes of the performance that, that uh, Linklater gave was, um, it was the voice of someone who had put a ton of, too much thought into things probably, right? But it was also the voice of someone who had re- um, discovered the energy they felt as when they were young, when they were first discovering the power of religion and what it meant to them and whatever. But with all the wisdom, it was, it, they say this, like, I think my favorite, so here, I want to ask you what your favorite line of the show, I have two answers for my favorite lines of the show, right? My first favorite line, my absolute favorite line, the peak line in the show, my favorite moment is Aaron Green, right? So, um, Bev is standing there, the, the vampire, the massacre is happening in the church. She's hiding. They come across her in the hall and then Aaron pulls out a gun and Bev is not impressed because they're vampires. Right. Mm -hmm. And Aaron points the gun at Bev and goes, and, and Bev goes, what are you going to do? <laughs> Shoot me. I'm a vampire. Like you'll put me down for five minutes. I'll be right behind you in five minutes. Right. And Aaron just unblinking Sydney Prescott style. <laughs> shoots right. And then turns to her friends and goes. We have five minutes. <laughs> the, best, the best line. The best line ever. Like, that was, it was the moment that Aaron and Bev were in complete agreement. Like, two people on the opposite sides of a spectrum. Bev's like, what are you going to do? Shoot me? All I do is buy you five minutes. And Aaron Green, I shot her. It bought us five minutes. Like, like totally in agreement. So that was the, that was the, the, the number one thing. But the other thing was, um, was, uh, Pruitt says when he's talking to who turns out to be the love of his life and I can't do justice to it you just got to go watch the scene it's in the Easter Vigil episode um, because the way he the cadence in which he said it I could listen to it like a music like mp3 I could I could just walk and listen to him say this over and over again because it was so magic <clears throat> it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it because He's like, he's talking about the miracles in the Bible. And he's like, loaves and fishes? Sure. Water and wine? Yeah, naturally, sure. Part the ocean? Great. The true miracle? I got a second chance. <laughs> second chances are the true miracle, right? And the, the, the second chance kind of motif of this, <clears throat> because almost every character in the show at some point is given the opportunity to have a second chance of some sort, right? And it's how they play their second chance that's meaningful. Everyone, what basically what Flanagan has done here is he's given everyone a, a pass on their first fuck up and he's judging them on their second time through, right? Like the first time through, you just didn't know what was going on and you, you like, whether it's life or your job or, or, you know, whatever, right? You did, you just didn't know, but if you get a second chance, 
and you play it just like the first chance, <laughs> then then you're damned, mm-hmm. right? Is basically the, the that's the theology, true theology of this show to me, right? And the thing that confirms that for me is when they give all these characters who made totally bad decisions, the people who backed up the cult, the people who killed their friends and neighbors, the people who who were complicit as as the island felt like they had the golden goose that was giving them miracles and making them young and making them feel great and making them feel validated. They didn't want to, they didn't want to, you know, let the outside world know that was happening. They didn't want to stop it, even though people were paying, you know, paying a price for it. They just wanted to ride that miracle gravy train. Right? So <laughs> that's the name so of my new funk band, they, the they miracle a, gravy train. <laughs> <laughs> they were all, they were all fucking up their first chance, but on the second chance, they all realized, you know, we have to pay the price for, for you know, to save the kids. The kids are going to get out, and and we are going to not let ourselves out. Like the like John Carpenter's The Thing. This thing can't get to the mainland, right? It can't get to the world. Mm-hmm. So we're all going to immolate. We're all going to let ourselves blow up here, right? So they all go. The kids all whatever. And who? doesn't play their second chance bev right because she's the worst character she plays her second chance like the first chance she makes the exact same decision she would have made in the first minute of the show at the last minute of the show right she tries to save herself digging that hole if she managed to save herself right if she managed to dig the hole and she managed to save herself and she managed to get off the island she might be telling herself well that was a mess let's never do that again but a week later, she'd be making the same mistakes right. and like spreading the contagion across the world. Like Bev Keen could have ended the world by by single handedly by getting off that island. But be and and all the rest of them make the right choice with their second chance, except for Bev. And that that to me is like the magic of what was going on there. I fucking love the show. <laughs> so excited. <laughs> um, rank the characters for me. Who is your least favorite character? Oh, least favorite? Oh shit. Well, I think I think I think Bev is on both ends. I hated her and loved her at the same time. It's just something about she has this creep like she has like the like creepy cheeks. Like her smile, like her cheeks are just like <laughs> it's like it's like you you look too nice. Like you look like you should be really nice and I don't like I've like I, I dated a preacher's daughter one time. I know I know what that <laughs> I know what that smile looks like. <laughs> that shit's fake. Um, you know my fa- my favorite person who uh, I knew was gonna get axed pretty quickly was uh, was Joe Colley because yeah. you 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 knew that he was gonna he, he he was he was trying to redeem himself. You knew how he was super broken and he he there was no way that guy was gonna survive the show. The show. Um, nope. I I kind of liked the sheriff quite a bit. And I don't feel like there was a ton of the mm-hmm. sheriff either. Like he was. Yeah, not till the end. He started to get a lot more involved in the last two episodes. But yeah, yeah. For sure. uh, but but it's it's pretty hard not to have Aaron up top. For yeah, for for Aaron, the best. Aaron is well, because awesome. like you you were saying like your favorite line of the show, and I don't know what my favorite line was. I don't because I, I can't really remember like what line I liked. I remember like the chunks of dialogue because it's like every other scene mm-hmm. there's like, you know, a dialogue. but I really liked the, um, when Joe and Riley were shooting the shit after going to their AA meeting, I thought that scene between them was really touching. If I had to pick a favorite line though, 
this is kind of this isn't really a line, but I think my favorite line was Aaron screaming through the credits at the, at the end of episode six. <laughs> there's there's only there's a handful of shows where they cut to the credits and like they keep playing like some kind of music or some kind of dialogue from the show, and it's like the most stylistic thing you can do. And not a lot of shows. I can't. I I know I've seen it, but I can't put my finger on where I've seen it. David before. Lynch did it in the in. David Lynch did it in Twin Peaks: The Return, and he, it was always great when he did it. He didn't do it in every episode, but it, when he did it, it's amazing. Yeah, and I just I, the, the screaming through the credits, like that was to me, like that was rocket fuel to be like, so we have to just finish it now. Like we have to. <laughs> there's there's no breaks. Um, yeah. But I think I think I think Aaron. <laughs> I think I think Aaron's my top. Who do you, who do you got? The um, I mean, I honestly the. The father of Pruitt, Monsignor Pruitt is my favorite character. No, sorry. Bev is my favorite character in the entire show. I would watch a spinoff show of Bev in a heartbeat. I, 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 I love Bev. I love her character. I love the actress. I love everything. Like, all that is amazing. But Monsignor Pruitt, I think, that, that show rises or falls with his character. His character is so... Somehow he incorporated, Literally. like, all the good... Yeah, totally. <laughs> he incorporated all the good things about what you love about... James Mason character in Salem's Lot, um, you know Chris Sarandon's character in Fright Night. You, you you got the 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 arriving person who's a threat, but is also charming. But and and Alex, uh, you know, she really put her finger on the fact that um, he was delusional yeah. about what was happening. That he it was it was the unaware vampire, right? It was the the feeling you get when you show up at a place and everyone keeps looking at you, and then you look down and you got a big piece of food on your shirt or, you know, something. Except for in this case, it was you're a vampire and you don't know it, <laughs> right? Right? Like, and I I'm of two minds of how aware he was of his own villainy, right? Because it would it's so this is this is an interesting question to think about is how aware was Pruitt of his own badness and bad decisions and so how much of a pass are you giving him so like when he first arrives he's dragging a crate that has a vampire in it he's slipping blood into communion and contagioning the town but we're expected to believe that he's doing all of this with good intentions right so is that true or is he actually a greedy person who's trying to engineer all this because he's just trying to get his second chance, the love of his life, and he's willing to subject the whole town to all these horrors just to take the shot of reworking his own life because it's a profoundly selfish thing what he's doing, right? So the question is, how, what are his intentions? And are they 100% good and he's just completely deluded? Are they 100% bad and he's a villain? That's really... What do you think, uh, like, on the intentionometer? I think, I think it's, a, I think it's a, a gradient. I think it's a moving scale. I think, I think it starts out greedy because he very clearly, you know, he, go, he even goes to um, her window at one point and then she freaks out and then Aaron thinks, you know, she's like, oh, you know, she's, you know, losing her marbles. 
Um, so I think I think it starts out very greedy because one that crate looks heavy, so <laughs> you, you got you got you know <laughs> you got you got to put some intention. Right. You're um, really motivated. Yeah, and then I th and then I think towards the end, especially when uh, they're burning the whole town down, and he uh, steps outside and sees what's happening. I think that's when it ticks back over, and he's like, "Ooh, <laughs> I called it. I called it wrong." <laughs> Well, that, so that's the thing is, I think that I, I think he and everybody else, and most importantly, Aaron, who has the key, like ending insight of everybody, because she, her vision of what happens when you die turns out to be the winning one. Like everyone's trading, swapping, you know, you know, visions of how they die uh, or what happens when you die. And hers turns out to be basically the show's you know, interpretation is her interpretation. So um, I guess her and Riley worked on it together like a school project. <laughs> but they come to they come to the right answer. But he, you know, once the big... I mean, it's not hard to look around at an island that's on fire and in an ocean of blood and be like, well, I made some bad choices. <laughs> right? But, but, but the thing is, um, I, I, you know, I don't know, man. I, I feel like... I feel like what you said is interesting. He might have been more of a villain in episode one than he was in episode seven, right? Yeah. Which is the opposite order or order it should be, but but maybe that's how it works. Which is which is kind of which is kind of cool. <laughs> I think that's kind of exciting. I'm just telling you, man. You um, you, you, I, you carry a crate full of a uh, full of you know blood angels or whatever, <laughs> whoever across an island. You tell me. You tell me your intentions, buddy. <laughs> You like um, creature design? What'd you think of the the? Oh, dude, he was vampire? he was cool, especially that first um, uh, the first like full look in that cave was was awesome. Especially when you when you when it ticks that this is a vampire show, because when you watch the trailers, you're like, you have no, you think it's just going to be sort of like a religiousy kind of culty type thing, and then it's just like boom, vampires. Yeah. I was like. Fuck yes, <laughs> sign, <laughs> sign, sign me up. And and he and he looked cool. You know, he was just a, he was just a bald, weird. And I like the fact that they kept because um, we watched with subtitles on. Um, I love how like it was always like referred to as an angel. <laughs> when like mm -hmm. is it <laughs> like mm -hmm. is it an angel? Right, angel. Like right. there's never like a really clear answer even in, this, in the subtitles. But the the design of it. Um, one, I'm always a fan of bald vampires. Ever since Nosferatu, I think bald. I think if you're a bald vampire, your creepiness goes up a couple, a couple, a couple notches. Um, the wings were cool, um, and, I, and especially the ending. There was just something. I thought the um, there's just something really unsettling about the end when he's just noshing on Aaron and she's just taking it and like slowly carving up his thing like I don't know there's like it's not scary like it's not like a it's not like a hereditary exorcist type scariness but like it's just when you see it's it's something you wouldn't ever see in another type of vampire film or show right and she was clipping his wings like in the story she had told about her mom holding making her hold the bird while she while she clipped the wings she was clipping the wings of the vampire. It was a little bit of an on the nose payoff to that uh, to that story, but the visuals of it were really cool. And the way you find out that the head vampire dies is phenomenal. Oh, right? that last you line! Don't, you don't see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't see it. It's it's the line that tells you that he's dead, which is which is just. So what do you cool. think of the design as a as a monster? Mm -hmm. 
I love I love the I love the design. I love like you said, I love I think my favorite moment though, and this is one of the things so you know, let's take Pumpkinhead <clears throat> for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Pumpkinhead is a great creature design, legendary creature design, and horror, huge cult following. I love the movie, but um, <clears throat> it's hard not to notice that a lot of the movie is shot basically in black because they didn't want to shed too much light mm-hmm. on this thing, right? But when when the Easter Vigil happens and they dress the 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 I'm calling him an angel when they dress the the angel vampire in in the full religious garments and bring him in. And he's oh, just that, standing oh. there with his, with his arms out and his palms up and whatever, but on display in like full light and it still works. That's the hallmark of a great design. Even if you can plunk it down into a, a brightly lit scene and it's still scary. That's even know, the shot gold. I will say the scariest shot, like that I think kind of wigged Alex and I out when we watched it was uh, right before that, when, uh, the door shut and they go to leave and they see like the tall figure just standing there and like his I mean he's got creepy eye some of Mike Flanagan and eyes I really did because he did the same shit in uh like Doctor Sleep with everyone's eyes kind of having oh, right. that weird glow but yeah that scene right there is like if you if you do like a you know like a horror movie montage of you know the what's gonna be in the next this this decade. There's no way that vampire does not show up in like 20 shots. Like it no. is amazing. It's no, it's amazing. <laughs> He's so good. And, and you know the thing is, I, I just want to because you know this is like an A plus review, and we you know I, I'm I'm probably gonna watch this thing. You know, I'm gonna rewatch that scene because I gotta see it again now. Now that we talk <laughs> about it, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just it's just like a, a a gift to to the horror community that that this is something that that can be produced out of out of the horror community and that and 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 get some notice and acclaim even outside you know the circle that we usually operate in. But um, th- it's not perfect, right? I, I the the unintentionally the funniest scene to me, and it, 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 I probably shouldn't be saying this, and it's probably like whatever, but. I, 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 the only, I, I talk a lot, as you can tell from these podcasts, um, when I watch movies, if I'm really into them, I'm an enthusiast. If I get excited, I start, you know, like whatever. So I, um, I knew, you know, I, I knew, I knew I you were going to blow up on this. Like I, <laughs> I knew you were going right, to watch right. this. I was, and dude, I was, I was, so I was dead quiet. I was dead quiet watching this show for most of it. Like I, you're, you're just absorbing it. When I realized that 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 the dead body from the car accident was actual stained glass. I'm like, all right, I just gotta shut up and absorb this, right? Because there's like really interesting things happening in it. But there's this moment where the doctor, who by the way, her her mom, all of those great characters, we just don't have enough time in the episode to cover everyone. But like I, even the bit characters on the island, even the people you just meet for a second, like or or a scene or two are so well done and so well acted and so well cast and so well portrayed. But there's this moment where the doctor goes to report to the sheriff that, um, that the, that she wants him to go investigate St. Patrick's because she thinks they're poisoning the communion there. And, um, Oh, I forgot all about the doctor. She goes and she, she goes and tells the sheriff this and the sheriff goes, she goes, we got we to gotta do right away. We got to put a stop to this right away. It's a crime. They're spreading a contagion. I'm a doctor. I'm telling you. Like, whatever. And he goes, do you know why I joined the police force? 
And then 10 minutes later, he's done with his story. And, and, and literally, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I swear to God, this story encompasses maybe eight minutes of time, <laughs> right, in the show. And by the time this unbelievably lengthy biographical, you know, basically mini memoir is done <laughs> of why the sheriff like the show, um, she goes, so are you going to investigate St. Patrick's? <laughs> like, like, I like, like I turned to Jenny while we were watching it. And this is why I'm saying I didn't talk during the show much, but I turned to her. I'm like, and this is why no crimes are ever reported on this island. <laughs> Can you imagine if you go to report crimes, like you go, someone broke into my car. Let me tell you about my first car. <laughs> and then you strap in for like an eight minute fucking story from the sheriff about like the origin of cars and Model T4. I saw a really right? funny I mean, TikTok was at- <laughs> uh, similar to that. It was uh, someone was like, hey, can you pass me one of those oranges? And the guy turns around and he goes, I remember when I first had an orange. I was young. And like he just starts to talk. He just starts to like right. do a memoir. <laughs> That's what that fucking was. It was absurd, right? And there is a lot of that in the show. So you know, there was only like one or two of those dialogues of I checked out on, like one or two of them, because I mean, there's like five every episode. But out of you know seven episodes, you know, the fact that only two of them, I, I sort of like checked my phone at. Like that's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. It's a lot of a lot of well, time. And the, and the monologue, it's the monologue itself is inherently interesting. The backstory of how he got to where he got is interesting. All that. It's just so bad placed in the context like that it was such a thin excuse to to put that speech there right i i didn't object to the speech i objected to you know the no sense of urgency <laughs> of like the fact that missing people the clock is ticking they might be you don't know what's happening to them they might be getting you know silence of the lamb they might have to put lotion in the basket it's a good thing she didn't go to the fire department because they would have been like there's a fire we need we need we need we need you to take it out with water and he's like i remember when i was swimming one year (laughs) and the water was surrounding me and i right (laughs) right and the the very the last thing i wanted to say was that um we have yet another one of these almost biannual at this point announcements that they've discovered the true Zodiac killer as we, as we record. Is that real? Is that real? Um, That that, yeah, I mean, I mean, it has, it seems to have some validity to it, but it seems like it could also be one of those things where, you know, a year from now you're buying the, the, the discovery of the real Jack the Ripper book in the dollar 99 bin at the bookstore because it's been debunked. It's been debunked. Right. And nobody cares because your guess was wrong, but they they have some pretty they seem to have some pretty interesting evidence from the the, the way they broke the cipher. It it makes sense that if the Zodiac's real last name was Post and they're theorizing that it's a guy whose last who his name was P O S T E, that he goes he would sign the letters and say you know you know you're you know sincerely and then he would just put a postage stamp. So the fact that his name's Post and he's putting ending the letter with a stamp is pretty slick, right? So if, the, if those things are true, then sure, right? But it, it got me thinking about how hard it is in horror and in life probably to be a completely solo villain, right? Like, like it's, it's Jim, Jim Jones and his Jonestown community manages to take out an entire community, but he has help. He has 
other people in the church that are enabling him. He's got a support structure. He's got investors, right? Like, like the, it, it, it takes a, it, it takes a village <laughs> to be a, to be a really destructive villain, right? And the lone villains, I mean, the Zodiac worked so hard and put so much thought. It sounds fucked up like I'm endorsing it, but I'm not. But he worked so hard and he, 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 he put so much thought into like, how do I hide, how do I communicate to the police, but also hide my tracks? Like, mm-hmm. where do I strike and kill and get away with it and keep the pattern enough of not a pattern where they can't track me? And he only managed to kill like five, six people, right? Mm-hmm. This, Father Monsignor Pruitt manages to wipe out an entire island, like a, like he dropped a bomb on it, right? But it's because he has help, right? Right. The villains need help; they need assistance to really spread their damage, right? And we see that with the pandemic, and we see that with when historical events go awry. We saw that actually with nine eleven. Like you can see that it takes it takes a a, a, a a like a complicit support structure to let to have villains maximize their damage potential, right? And I found it interesting that the Zodiac worked his whole life and only managed to kill five people, and this you know religious community goes sideways for you know, a week, and hundreds of people die, <laughs> right? And put the whole whole world at risk, and I think what what I found ultimately most interesting about that was the fact that Bev really was the one who jumped in and started architecting, just like the the apostles did for Jesus. Like if you if you don't believe in Jesus as religious, if you're a secular, if you believe that Jesus existed as a man, as a as an incredibly talented individual who is a gifted communicator and a bit of a troublemaker and a bit of a rogue genius, right? But he never wrote anything down. And and the 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 only reason it kind of lasted if you're not doing the divine answer, it, because he's a blip on Roman radar. He was like one news report on one day for the Roman Empire, right? Like he, he was like headline news. He was like the third article in headline news for hour three, and that was it. So So they didn't even know it happened, right? But... But um, if you believe in the secular thing, it was the fact that they took everything he did and architected this a religion around it that gave it its true power, you know, in the secular sense, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the fact that Bev jumps in with all her interpretations and the fact that the show is clever enough so that when we first meet Bev, like the very first time, first of all, she's already mixing up religion and dating. Like, cause she's a weirdo. Like she goes to the dock to meet Pruitt. Pruitt's not there. And then she comes back and she goes, it's okay. I went to meet you there and you know, you weren't there. You left me there. Like I was jilted, like, you know, on the, on the stage at a prom, like a prom date. That's a weird analogy is weird. <laughs> for, for, for picking up. Right. Because she's already crosswired. Right. But the fact that she jumped in and the fact that the Joe's dog snaps at her as she's walking by. Right. And Joe and the sheriff say the true interpretation of what's happening and the true interpretation of what's happening is that dog is just waiting for its dad. It's outside and it's in a bad mood because its dad has left him tied outside. And, and the sheriff literally says to Bev, he's just waiting for his daddy. Right. And she goes, no, that dog, he was going to take off my hand. He was mean. He was lunging at me. 
she has an interpretation of events that is the worst spin on the events. And it's also inaccurate, <laughs> right? And she's going to serve that role through the entire course of the story, <laughs> right? Every time the father does something, he kills Joe, and he's just sitting there, and he doesn't even know what to think of it. Joe's like dead on the floor, and he's covered in blood. And she's like, oh, praise be. <laughs> like, God moved, God moved through you to, to do this. And then she gives the, the, the explanation why. And it's wrong. She's as wrong about that as she was about the dog. But that's her job in the story, is to take the maximal bad potential of the worst, most pessimistic spin of something and make everyone accept it, <laughs> right? And, and the fact that they gave us a taste of it at the very beginning in this passing scene with the dog that you don't even think about ever again, but it's the key to her whole character is phenomenal, right? I, I can't wait to rewatch the rest of it. I hardly ever rewatch <laughs> series, but I think over the course of the past hour, I've been convinced to. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and I do it in, in an eyes wide shut way. It's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful show. It's so, there's so many like Christmas colors and red and green and blue lighting. And, and I don't know. It's just a gorgeous show. The shots, the candle vigil when they're walking. Oh, and I singing, love that. And the camera pulls up high from like, with the way Hitchcock did the birds with the phone booth bird scene and shoots down on the candle procession. Oh my God. It's just visual. I could watch a show with no sound. <laughs> no, it's a, it Amazing. is, it's like a 10 out of 10 show, like pretty easily. Yeah. I, well, that's the thing is, I, so I, I score this show 18 out of 10 where it matters and like four out of 10 for everything that the internet hates about it. I do think it's too speechifying. I do think it's kind of heavy handed on the nose and some parts. But that's what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there's some other things where that, 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 see, Titanic has that, right? Not this, I know this is not a horror thing, but Titanic has that, but it doesn't fucking matter because as soon as the ship starts sinking, it's amazing, <laughs> right? Who cares? The rest of it's bad. The characters are like, like the worst sketched out on a napkin character arc. I get it. All that's bullshit. It's bad writing. It's corny as fuck. It's like, you know all that, but then the special effect kick in, and that's why you're here. <laughs> and you know, just to so so, would would Aaron be the unsinkable Molly Brown? <laughs> she would. Okay. <laughs> you know, she she's if if the unsinkable Molly Brown was flammable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, I mean, that's. <laughs> Anything else to add to the, to the episode? Yeah, that's Midnight Mass. Go check it out. It's so Let us know what you think of, of Midnight Mass and you know the the I, I, I'm willing to entertain the 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 slings and arrows of you know I didn't like this or I didn't like that yeah. part of it. I, I, I but but I I'd be interested to see other opinions of it. I, I saw you know the critics like it, but that doesn't really doesn't count because there aren't yeah. any good working critics. Critics anymore. Well, I mean, it means something. Critic film criticism at its best is also an art. Well, right? like, like I was, our... well, like I was telling you, uh, since we're doing this remote, we I'm in Ohio because we premiered our movie last night, and this old guy left the theater. <laughs> the guy went, "How was it?" And he went, "Terrible." <laughs> so, 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 
So, but other people thought it was good. So we should talk about that real quick. How do you check out that movie? Is there is there a way to do this? Yeah. So it's, it's going. It's on Amazon right now. It's called Eating Cars. It is. It is kind of a funky little movie. It was made for twenty thousand dollars. Like it is. It is low budget. He's got some B movie monster makeup towards the end there. It's it's uh. It's basically about a girl in L.A. who's trying to get out of Dodge, but she has to offload some drugs before she does. And there's a couple of assassins after her wanting the money. <laughs> so it's uh, it's really fun. It, the editing and it is beautiful. I might say so myself. <laughs> that, that was, <laughs> I, was the, I love the title. Yeah, it was really cool. And then after the screening, uh, Trevor had edible suckers in the shape of a car. So after watching Eating Cars, you could eat cars. And the film students there loved it. That's, so <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's a, that is awesome. It's just so exciting that you're at a film Q&A and the whatever. The, the only non-exciting part is it made us wake up at 8 in the morning and do this. Well, what's funny, what's funny is there was this one guy there uh, who like loved the movie. He was like, I go to these art house movies all the time and they're always predictable. He goes, I had no idea where this movie was going. I really, he's like, I really enjoyed the fact that I couldn't predict it. And I was like, could you do me a favor and put that on Rotten Tomatoes? Cause that will instantly put us at a hundred percent. I was like, just go ahead, <laughs> That's awesome. just go ahead, throw it on there. So awesome. yeah. So let us know. What you, so a hundred percent fresh. 100%. Go, go check out the eating cars. A hundred percent fresh. Unless, unless that old, <laughs> like unless that old dude who couldn't walk as an accountant and we're fucked <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're screwed. But yeah, let us know. Let us know what you guys think of Midnight Mass. I'm I'm, I'm very curious too because it is. It's not a uh, very scary show, but it's it's a very well done show. Uh, so let us know. In a, let us know in the reviews on iTunes. We cracked fifty. Who's gonna be fifty one? You know what I'm saying? Like who's gonna be that fifty? Fifty yes. first person. And uh, yeah, it's it's Halloween season now. We got to watch a bunch of bunch more horror movies. Dude, it's finally. I know you. You went to the 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 home of fall weather over there on the east coast, but I, L.A. is never fall vibes, and it is completely overcast, a little oh. rainy. It's a, a nice sixty eight degrees. I, L.A. is never like this, and I watched the finish Midnight Mass, and I'm and. Uh, they just did a Val Luton marathon on Turner Classic Movies. So Criterion added people, all the uh, Universal films online. I think. Oh. Yeah, I think it's, I saw a post about it today. It's such a good season. Unbelievable. I, I love the way this season is locking in to sort of save Halloween. We did an episode where, you know, are you, are you disillusioned with Halloween or whatever? And I feel like ever since we did that, we should do an episode where we're like disillusioned with our lack of winning lottery tickets. Because every time <laughs> you express like disillusion with, you're like, you know what? You know, Halloween season has been crap the, lately. And no. all of a sudden it's fucking amazing. <laughs> the next episode is going to be untitled. And it's just going to hear, they're just going to hear us <laughs> do with scratch offs. Just <laughs> nothing. Next. <laughs> so so it. until next time, stay scary. Watch a bunch of horror movies and get some lottery tickets. <laughs> we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye, guys.